one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's Jeremy Cliff here, the international editor of The New Statesman. If you're a regular listener to World Review you'll know that we're taking a close interest in the German federal election on September 26th. Angela Merkel is stepping down. Big questions loom about the future of Europe's biggest economy. This is the most genuinely open and unpredictable German election in a long time, with global implications. So over the next couple of months, we're going to do something different. Instead of covering the election in our regular World Review episodes, we're launching a bonus series, Germany Elects. I'll be presenting it from here in Berlin, and we'll be joined by some of the sharpest, most incisive voices from the worlds of German politics, ideas, foreign policy and culture to make sense of it all. Germany Elects will come out every two weeks on the normal World Review feed. So if you don't already subscribe, now's the time to do so. It's a really important period for Germany and for Europe. So I hope you join me and my guests for the journey. And if you enjoy it, why not leave us a nice review on your preferred podcast provider? So with that... Let's get started. In this first episode of Germany Elects, we'll start by taking a look at the polls. We've had 16 years of Angela Merkel. In that time, she has very rarely gone south of 50% approval. Now we have candidates for Chancellor who, to say the least, are inspiring next to nobody. And we'll be discussing what to expect between now and Election Day. We're seen as the political anchor nation of Europe. It's you know not a coincidence that, that Russian and Chinese interference in the election campaign is, is at unprecedented levels. Constanze Stelzenmüller. She'll be joining me along with Kui Pham later in the episode. But first, let's set the scene. Our story starts in October 2018, when Angela Merkel confirmed that her long era as Chancellor was drawing to a close. This fourth term will be my last as Chancellor at the Federal Republic of Germany. I will not run again to be Chancellor at the federal election in 2021, nor run as a candidate for Parliament and, for the record, nor will I pursue any further political offices. That makes the upcoming election the first since the very start of the Federal Republic at which the incumbent Chancellor is not running. This alone adds a dose of unpredictability. 
There are three candidates who might conceivably succeed Merkel. Armin Laschet of her Christian Democratic CDU, Annalena Baerbock of the Greens, and Olaf Scholz of the Social Democratic SPD. Here are Laschet and Baerbock in a recent foreign policy debate hosted by the broadcaster ARD and the Munich Security Conference, clashing over how to deal with Hungary's authoritarian government. What do you do with Orban? If you'd let me speak, I could answer the question. If the European centre-right had said in the last years, you're a member of the Conservatives, you don't support European values, you can no longer be part of our group, our party, then that would have been a clear stance. He isn't anymore. He's been suspended and is no longer a member. You know that. Suspended. You just said it's not the European centre-right's problem. The question, Miss Baerbock, the question is, if you want to become Chancellor, how do you deal with a country that doesn't accept that. In my view, only the European Court of Justice can decide that. Ah, then I have a different opinion. And what's that? If you'd let me speak. I'm waiting for the answer. You're now interrupting me for the third time. Foreign policy is one of a number of areas where big questions over Germany's future demand answers. Others include the future of its economic model, social and cultural divides, and of course, climate change. That subject has risen up the agenda following the devastating flooding in parts of Western Germany last month. Here in the village of Rech, you can hear the waters of the river Ah smashing vehicles against the bridge. The floods, which killed some 200 people, also provided a reminder of how unexpected events might shape this election. Armin Laschet's approval ratings plummeted after he was pictured on July 17th laughing at a joke in the background of this somber speech by Germany's president in Erftstadt, one of the worst hit areas. And then, of course, there's Covid-19. Infections are rising again, and while most Germans support the government's lockdown and vaccine policies, a vocal minority are viscerally opposed. As we saw this past weekend here in Berlin, in clashes between protesters and the police. How the pandemic might shape the campaign remains to be seen. It's going to be a fascinating few weeks in German politics. Well, I'm joined now by Ben Walker, the New Statesman's data and polling guru. And Ben is the keeper of the new New Statesman Germany poll tracker in which he's monitoring voting intention and all sorts of other metrics in this election campaign and will be doing so right up to polling day. Ben, thank you for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. So let's go straight into the numbers. I think it's widely known that the Christian Democrats, Merkel CDU and their Christian Social Union partners are ahead in the polls. How far ahead are they and can they be comfortable of coming first? You know, about a few months ago, talk of them being, you know, certain winners, that was sort of in the bin because the Greens had a bit of a surge back at the start of May and now they've sort of regained the lead. So at the moment, if I could just give you the headline numbers, the CDU, CSU are sitting relatively pretty with 28% of the vote. That is, however, down five points on 2017 when they were down already from 40-something percent in 2013. They are ahead of their nearest challenger, the Greens, who've had so far and for the past few years a pretty good campaign if you want to call the past few years a campaign the greens at the moment are on 19 percent. that's up 10 points on 2017 they were in may sitting pretty with around about 26 percent of the vote 
now that that's gone down just a little bit more. So for the pulse change quite that significantly in the space of a few months suggests things are still up in the air. The uh, coalition partner for the CDU-CSU is the Social Democrats. They too have experienced a bit of a hit in their numbers. At the moment, they're on 16%. That's down four points. Other parties in the Conservative Liberals, Free Democrats, that is 12%. They're up two points on 2017. The left or the, the Socialists, they're on 7% down two points and the alternative for Germany, the far right, they are an 11% and that's down two points on 2017 as well. So it's actually a relatively tightly bunched race. I mean, you've got the CDU, CSU, as we've seen in the last few months, do have a certain softness to their vote. And then you've got those other three parties, the Free Democrats, the Social Democrats and the Greens clustered around the, the sort of mid to late teens. I think that speaks to what could be quite an interesting race, particularly when we start getting into coalition arithmetic, which I think we'll probably save for another week, but is definitely going to be an important part of the story. Ben, tell us a bit more about the wider political landscape in Germany at the moment, because your tracker covers various other issues as well, doesn't it? Mm, yeah. Listeners will be shocked to learn that we've had the coronavirus crisis over the course of the past year and a bit, and that has until recently dominated German politics. However, recently, according to some, some trackers in terms of what issue motivates voters, the environment has surged. It's gone up from what was, I don't know, about 15 to 18% in March of this year, to about 40-something percent now. Voters are paying more attention to the climate and will be voting accordingly. And your logic, your head will conclude that should benefit the Greens, right? Well, it seems like it could. seems like it could. But at the moment, as I must reiterate, they have seen a bit of a decline in, 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 their, in their, their projected share. So as I said before, they were on 26% in mid-May now they're on 19%, but their decline has stopped. They're currently sort of staying stagnant. So it really could help them there. And in fact, their Chancellor candidate, Annalena Baerbock's been attempting a bit of a, a relaunch. She had a, a, a couple of difficult weeks over for various issues earlier in the campaign. And I think the interesting thing will be now, do the Greens get to capture that focus on the environment. Obviously, there was this terrible flooding in parts of Western Germany recently, which pushed it up the agenda. But then on the other hand, you have parties like the Christian Democrats, like the SPD, who say you don't need to vote green to be for the environment. In fact, Marcus Söder, the leader of the CSU, the, the CDU's alliance partner, was saying something exactly along those lines. So let's let's watch how that develops. Yeah. One, one wonders, though, how much motivation or enthusiasm there is amongst the CDU, CSU vote to vote for their party right now. We've seen a big decline in their vote share. They are down, as I say, five points on 2017. So is the Social Democrats, to be fair. But there is no pull on the union vote anymore to vote for the Chancellor candidate. We've had 16 years of Angela Merkel, and in that time, she has very rarely gone south of 50% approval. Very, very rarely have German voters thought that she could not do a good job as Chancellor. Now we have candidates for Chancellor who, to say the least, are inspiring next to nobody. So in 2017, when Angela Merkel was up against the Social Democrats, Martin Schulz, he was the chancellor candidate back then, around about 15% of Germans didn't know who they wanted as chancellor. Now that figure sits at around 45%. 45% of German voters in this election don't really know what chancellor they want once Angela Merkel leaves office. Are we seeing any movement in that, in that number? A few weeks ago, the number of Germans who were undecided about who they wanted as chancellor was at 38%. Now it's gone up to about 45%. Reason being, the floods in Germany. Armin Laschet, at the end of July, 24th of July, 
had 25% of Germans saying they preferred him as Chancellor. That was above Olaf Scholz at 20% and Annalien Baerbock at 70%. Now Laschet's score has collapsed from 25% to below Scholz on 19%. Quite a big drop for him. Have the other candidates seen much of a you know resurgence as a consequence of that? No, not yet. All, at the moment, to say the least, Germans are just undecided about who they want. And of course, the fall in Laschet's support may have something to do with that now famous clip of him laughing in what was a sombre moment during the floods. Let's see whether his capacity for gaffes becomes a larger scale issue in this campaign as it goes on. I'd like to say a big thank you to Ben for joining us, and you'll find a link to his poll tracker in the show notes. We'll also be checking back in with Ben as the campaign goes on. We're offering a special discount on new subscriptions to The New Statesman for listeners to these podcasts. You can get 12 weeks for just £12, that's about €14, Euros, by visiting newstatesman.com slash subscribe12. After the break... So I really wonder, are we going to, you know, learn on election day, will we have a little moment where we suddenly say, look, that the number of people who disagreed with our mainstream view on Corona is much bigger than we thought. Wei Fam and Constanze Stelzenmüller will be joining me to discuss the campaign. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Now to discuss the campaign in greater detail, I'm delighted to be joined by a stellar duo of Germany writers and explainers. Constanze Stelzenmüller is the Fritz Stern Chair on Germany and Transatlantic Relations at the Brookings Institution in Washington. This is her third appearance on a World Review podcast, so I think I think we can go as far as calling her a friend of the pod. Uh, welcome <laughs> back, Constanze. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. And I'm also uh, joined here in Berlin by uh, Huey Pham of Die Zeit newspaper, where she's an editor, interviewer and essayist on Die Zeit magazine. Uh, her debut novel, Wo auch immer ihr seid, wherever you are, is out next month. So congratulations and welcome, Huey. Thank you very much for having me. Now, I'm hoping to use you two to sort of have a bit of a conversation about how much movement, how much volatility and how much range we can expect from this German election campaign and its aftermath. And I, I was struck by a recent interview in Der Spiegel by Markus Söder, the leader of the CSU, 
who said, seemingly firing a shot across the bows of uh, Armin Laschet, he said, it can't be taken for granted that we, the CDU, CSU, will form the government and can defend the chancellery, which was seemingly quite a daring thing to say about his party colleague or his, his party family colleague. So I'd like to start by just asking, do we agree with that? Constanza, do you want to start us off? To begin with, I think it's important to to remind listeners that Marcus Zuda is in the business of reminding people that he would have been the better chancellor candidate. He has not been known to leave out uh, an occasion to do this. But but the the truth is that he has a point. The polls right now are showing, I think, 45% of respondents preferring somebody else than one of the three candidates. The race is incredibly open, not just eight weeks before the the actual election date, but but by German historical standards. And all sorts of coalition are an option, and including a coalition where the CDU-CSU would not be a member of the government. In other words, it would be then formed by a so-called traffic light, the Social Democrats, Greens, and the, and the Liberals. But there are other variations as well. What about you, Craig? What do you think of that? Now, I wonder if you could also reflect on the significance of there not being an incumbent running for Chancellor. It's pretty unusual in any German election, uh, Merkel stepping down. Does that mean there's more room for an upset, do you think? Well, I think Merkel, she's been ruling Germany for 16 years, and she's a bit like the Queen of England, um, <laughs> like somebody who doesn't say very much, who is a symbol of stability in times of turmoil, and who has, through her persona, become to embody um, German politics for a very, very long time. So what I'm really hoping for in this election campaign is to change the gear, change the way we talk about politics, change the way we think about politics. But I'm not sure if we are very good at this, if we look at the campaign so far. I feel that we, we were finding it very hard to talk about the real political changes which are at stake here. The question of how we want, what, what kind of a country we want to be in the future, because we haven't really spoken about these issues so much during Merkel's time. Right. And I suppose that puts the onus on the election campaign to deliver that big open debate. What do either of you think about the chances of it doing that? Because I mean, I think many of many of those of us non-Germans who want the best for the country would want a debate where these things were got out into the open, the future of the German economy, the future of Germany's place in the world, decarbonizing an industrial economy, big fundamental questions that with some, with, with some major trade-offs to negotiate. I have to say, I've been a little concerned that we in the German, more Berlin-based commentariat have been spending a bit too much time talking about plagiarized doctors, theses and books and details of people's CVs. Do either of you think things are going to get better on that front? I definitely hope they will. I do wonder whether there's some psychological reasons for us focusing so much on petty mistakes. I wonder, are there any, can you think of any other countries where we would spend so much time talking about plagiarism or a video in which a candidate was seen laughing for 10 seconds? And we have this big question of how are we going to come through this crisis, through the corona crisis? How are we going to rebuild the economy? And we have the big question of how are we going to combat climate change, which has, I think, become very, very important to many people in this country after the flooding that we saw. I do think that plagiarism, if proven to be an accurate charge, is, you know, a useful measure of a candidate's character. But I think Hue is, is, is right in, in pointing out that what we're seeing 
in Germany is an election campaign that is in to a very large degree, a disturbing degree, almost sedative. It's looking at the smallest, least important issues while the country is besieged with enormous transformational problems. And let's not forget, because we haven't talked about foreign policy yet, and that's my topic, that we're seen as the political anchor nation of Europe. It's you know not a coincidence that that Russian and Chinese interference in the election campaign is is at unprecedented levels. It's not a coincidence that our neighbors are worried about us. And and I think if you if you look at this campaign from the outside, as I've now been doing, living in Washington D.C., the self-containedness, uh, the narrowness of it is is quite disturbing. I suppose a tempting explanation, particularly for those of us used to the more polarised politics of countries like the US or the UK, is that the ideological, the the programmatic gap between the possible governments is relatively, might seem relatively small, you know, whether we're talking about a black-green government or a so-called Jamaica government or a traffic light, as you mentioned, Constanza, you know, these are all governments organised around the centre with conservative and progressive streaks that would broadly continue in something like a Merkelian mould. It is tempting, therefore, to say perhaps the the election has been focusing on or has not been focusing much on substance because the differences of substance aren't that great. Set against that, there are clear and distinct differences between the parties and the, and the potential chances, particularly on that subject of foreign policy. So I, I wonder kind of what the way out of that riddle is. Perhaps the differences on substance aren't that great, although they are there. But there is a disparity between the intensity of the challenges and the problems that lie ahead, whether it's in foreign and security policy or in the transformation of the economy or in on, on social issues raised by the pandemic and by the flooding. There are huge problems there. And I mean, the general impression one gets, and I'd, I'd, I'd be curious to see what Hui has to say to those living in Germany, unlike me, is, is that all three of the candidates basically present themselves with the message was, I am good enough. What what I bring to these problems is good enough for what is needed. And I'm not entirely sure that's true. I can I can imagine that on a poster. <laughs> Armin Laschet, good enough. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like Angela Merkel's, do you remember Angela Merkel's slogan during last uh, campaign? Sie you kennen mich. Yes, of course, you know, you know me. me. And I think it said that says it actually says a lot about her style of politics. It was all about you know me. You can trust that I'm going to do the right thing. It's not going to be a discussion about you know what she wanted, what she actually wanted to do, but laying the trust in her hands and she'll be fine. So we have um, Armin Laschet, whom, as Constanze pointed out at the beginning, was you know like came out of a very close contest within the Conservatives and the Bavarian Conservatives. So he was already a bit of a not quite a lame duck, a bit of damaged goods when he started as a candidate. Then we have Annalena Baerbock, who is uh, the green candidate, the change candidate, if you want. And she's a real provocation to, I think, the establishment because she's a woman, she's 40 years old, and she hasn't held office before. She's been in parliament for eight years, but she doesn't have a, you know, like a, a record as being the governor or something like that unlike Armin Laschet. And the third candidate is Olaf Scholz, who, interestingly enough, 
polls quite well when people are asked, you know, who would they would like to see as a chancellor. He's pretty much on the same level as the other two. But of course, he's a social democrat and the social democrats are doing very, very badly, have been doing very badly in Germany for a long time. So none of them really sparks. And actually, I think for a lot of the German electorate, all of them are not quite good enough. I think we are all waiting maybe for that moment where somebody will suddenly turn into a swan and um, <laughs> show some unexpected signs. But unfortunately, the last weeks have shown quite the opposite. In times of crisis, Armin Laschet, who is the front runner because the CDU is the front runner, has shown that he's actually not a crisis manager, but he's a bit slow to react. And then sometimes he, he says, yes, on one day, you know, don't worry about climate change on one day. And next day he will be like, oh, yes, of course, we need to do something about climate change. And, and so he doesn't really come across as somebody whom we can really trust. And it's actually a bit, I guess, a lot of people would say the same about the other two candidates too. I mean, what's so disconcerting about all three of them, is that they're playing defense two months ahead of the of a national election that is a Zeitenwende election, as you would say in German, which could become, certainly if you look at the problems that are besetting the country, could and by rights ought to become a as it were, the, the, the beginning of a new of a new age in German politics. And all three of them are playing defense, as Americans would say. And defense for good reasons, because Annalena Baerbock hasn't really been able to recover, astonishingly, from what are relatively minor mistakes, because Laschet turns out to seem quite shallow when faced with, with serious challenges or the, the need to be empathetic. And Scholz, let's not forget, for all his experience and for his very real merit in pulling together the European recovery program and basically forcing the Chancery to accept it in the first half of the pandemic, is also responsible for scandals like the Comex trading scandal in Hamburg and the Wirecard scandal last year. These are, you know, these these are things that cast some serious doubt on on his otherwise excellent record as as finance minister. There is a sense, you know, that this is that none of these choices are are particularly persuasive. Totally, and this this should be, as you say, a a, a turning point election. I think the, yeah, the turning the, point. That's the word I was looking for. Sorry. <laughs> very nicely expressed in German. And I wonder, actually, if I mean, Quay, you mentioned you mentioned Merkel's slogan last time, "Sie kennen mich, you know me." I think also of that 2013 poster, which was just a picture of Merkel's famous rhombus hand gesture blown up into an enormous poster that was put outside the the main station in in Berlin. You know that after this this sort of this apolitical Merkel style of campaigning and politics, where it really is about character, where it's really about saying, I don't really mind what, what's in her manifesto, but she seems like someone who does the right thing, that, that these character-led elections kind of, you know, are continuing into this new era. And, and, I, and I wonder if that's why, for example, I mean, as you say, Constance, these questions about plagiarism are questions about character. They're not, they're not irrelevant. That maybe that's just the mode that German politics is still in after 16 years of Merkel. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, as, as, as media people, we need to ask ourselves, 
you know, if, if, if this is the right way of talking about politics. We are all enthralled with personalities. I myself was, you know, in a way kind of addicted to news about Donald Trump. I have to admit. <laughs> what we all. <laughs> Politics is also entertainment and it's also, you know, like the personal downfall, the personal ambition and so on. But then at the same time, if you look not only at the B note, I think, I don't know if that's, do you use that in English too? Like in ice skating competition, there's always an A note and a B note and the B note is the performance. That That's why we do it. And maybe it's also because as political journalists, in a way it's, sometimes easier to describe situations, personal character, faults, and so on. And it's fucking difficult to understand all these big problems that we're <laughs> facing right now, right? The corona pandemic, <laughs> we all had to kind of fast forward and, and learn all these nerdy scientific stuff about, you know, like modeling and infection rates. And, and, and suddenly now everybody's totally fluent in different types of vaccine but, but it really showed how, how complex these things are and also how global the challenges are uh, that we're facing. So, yeah, corona is not over. Climate change, totally a problem that you cannot address just from, you know, like from the point of view of just one country or one city. But you need to find alliances and you need to understand how things, uh, you know, like the growth of the Chinese economy and, you know, coal mining in, in Germany, how they are related. You know, this is a politician's job to to steer these things, to manage these things. And one thing that really impressed me about Joe Biden was that, you know, like as a character in all these large profiles that we read before, he always came across as somebody, you know, who's gone through a lot in his life, but he was kind of boring. <laughs> and, you know, like as a politician, he he's actually he's implementing a lot of change. I think Quay makes a very, very good point, which is that... Joe Biden was thought as the sort of compromise transitional candidate here and has turned turned out to be someone who, despite his very advanced age, he's 78, has a, a transformational agenda and one that he is pursuing with a lifetime of accumulated political skill, which is not to say they haven't made tactical mistakes. They have. But this team came in extremely prepared and has been running since day one. Sitting here in Washington, I look at these three campaigners and I wonder, given the extraordinary vulnerabilities that we have experienced as Germans in the past decade, again, against climate, flooding, the coronavirus, external meddling in our elections, does any of these three candidates have the kind of team behind him preparing legislative, political, social solutions for all these problems. And I, I frankly want, you know, I would like, I would be very reassured if there was a single day on which I'd gotten that impression. Mm. Particularly as it looks very likely that the next government will be a new form of coalition for the for the German exactly. people. You know, whatever, what, whether whether it's Blackburn, whether it's Jamaica, whether it's traffic light, it will be it will be a formation that has not existed at federal level in German in, in in the history of the Federal Republic, and in several cases has only existed in a couple of places at state level. And so, bringing together disparate political traditions 
working out where the areas of commonality are and how and how they can work seems to me like an enormous task. And I know that you shouldn't, you know, for the reasons we've discussed, one shouldn't spend the whole election campaign simply gaming out what's going to happen afterwards. But there is a substantive programmatic element to this, which is what would an elision of Christian Democrat and green politics look like? What sort of project for government would that involve? And if it's going to be the left, you know, and, and the onus here, I think, would be on Scholz, on Baerbock, the, the prospective leaders of a traffic-like coalition, to say perhaps a bit more about, about where their different traditions can come together and you know, wh- wh- where, for example, they would feel they can make concessions to the, to the Free Democrats to get them on board. I think you, c- you can have those conversations about coalitions without it just being kind of empty punditry. Absolutely. Um, one thing which I find quite striking about the this election campaign is that the FDP has been somewhat underreported because last time uh, they were about to go into a Jamaica um, government and they and it failed at the last minute because of the FDP and its party leader um, Christian Lindner. And it's possible that we could see this a new attempt this this time. And there's one thing about the FDP where they do really differ from the others, which is the corona politics. I think they're trying to position themselves as the party of common sense, but not, you know, like in, in a in a in a too populistic way, but being the party that questions, you know, like over, over overly strong restrictions on, on public life. And in fact, last week, uh, we had an uh, interview um, in Zeit with one of their politicians from North Westphalia, North Westphalia, who called for a Freedom Day modeled on Boris Johnson's Freedom Day on the 3rd of October, where in Germany, we should, we should lift all restrictions. And this is something where we could see big clashes, I think, in a, in a potential Jamaica coalition, because Greens and Conservatives are quite have been very cautious in their corona politics and i think it's that's this is going to be a big um, issue as we enter fall and as we see do we see numbers of infections rising again a lot of people in germany are very concerned about that i think the fdp might also they're, they're obviously going to, to to try and shake up the debate on on coronavirus restrictions but also on um germany's they they want to take quite a, a firm stance on fiscal policy i mean that's one mm. of the other things we've seen from christian lindner is that he said vote for the, F- for the FDP so that we have a Jamaica government and not a black green government so that I can be finance minister and I can protect the debt break and the sort of the tenets of order liberalism. Now, agree with that or not? I suppose at least that is actually putting, you know, putting down some firm markers and hopefully perhaps starting a proper discussion. So let's let's see. I think they'll be interesting to watch for that reason, also because they're rising in the polls and because they may play an important kingmaker role. So that's, I think, definitely one to watch. I just thought I'd conclude actually by asking you both what else, what other aspects of the campaign you think observers of German politics, whether inside the country or far from it, might want to concentrate if if they're, if they're following it over the next next weeks? Any thoughts, uh, Constanza? I think we ought to be more concerned than it seems to me we are about adversarial meddling. I know this this sounds sort of awfully Cold War like, but I was quite struck by the fact that a couple of weeks ago, the heads of the two German intelligence services went on record at a, at a news conference together saying that external meddling what was at levels not seen since the Cold War. And there is a great deal of concern among people who study this. I think the problem is that, that this has become more and more sophisticated technologically, 
it's no longer as crude as it was, uh, shall we say, in the early days of the Ukraine crisis when you could recognize online trolls by their Russian syntax. Now these meddlers use domestic actors and amplify them. So it is much harder to attribute meddling to them. And if I look at the, for example, the extraordinary phenomenon of conspiracy theorists, the, the German word is, is querdenker, coming to the flood-stricken areas uh, in the past weeks, imitating the armed forces relief groups and saying that they were being withdrawn or you know, hard hard right groups coming there and saying, we're your national, we're the Nationale Hilfe, we're the, we're the only ones really helping you. I mean, it seems to me that there is a great deal going on, uh, both from domestic groups and and uh, with with and from those who have external support, to try and delegitimize and undermine people's trust in in German politics and in the credibility of these elections. Again, the candidates are doing quite well in doing this on their own, but there is there there is some pretty there are some pretty malignant actors out there. And I hope that they will be flushed out, called out, and and made responsible. What about you, Hui? What what do you think are the the things worth paying attention to? I'm also very interested in the shadows of the election. If you want, I always wonder: are there blind spots? Are there you know things that we don't see? One example is what Constanze just mentioned. Another example, which struck me uh, yesterday was the splinter group of the so-called Freie Wähler. They are a, a, a party which only, they're actually a regional party in Bavaria. And the, the deputy governor of Bavaria is actually one of them, Hubert Aiwanger. I had never really paid much attention to him until he gave an interview where he admitted that he hasn't been vaccinated yet. He wants to see how vaccinations really work. And he has heard a lot of bad stories about the side effects and so on. It's almost close to the so-called querdenker, the, the people who are, you know, against the corona restriction. There's, there's, there's a broad consensus, I always felt, that we need to do everything we can to combat the virus. And so we will, with great discipline, accept really tough restrictions and lockdowns. But maybe there's a number of people that we don't see where we don't know how, how big they really are and how loud they really are and how well they are networked and placed in different parties that really disagree with this new consensus that we have. So I really wonder, are we going to, you know, learn on election day, will we have a little moment where we suddenly say, look, that the number of people who disagreed with our mainstream view on Corona is much bigger than we thought? I think you both persuaded me that this is going to be a very exciting and open election campaign for good and bad reasons. And I, sp I suppose it makes sense, really. You've got you've got Merkel gone, three somewhat flawed mainstream candidates, the power of events, as we've seen with the floods, as we've seen with some of the coronavirus developments. I think that leaves a lot of room for twists and turns along the way. And it's going to be fascinating to watch. And I'd just like to say thank you very much, both of you, for joining me to, 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 to preview it in this inaugural episode of, of Germany Elects. So thank you very much, Constanze Stelzmüller. It was a pleasure, Jeremy. And thank you very much, Hui Pham. Thank you very much for having me. It was a great pleasure to speak to both of you. And of course, we'll be covering all of these topics in further detail on future episodes of Germany Elects. That's it for this time. I'll be back in two weeks for our second Germany Elects episode, in which I'll be asking, what does the election mean for the rest of Europe and the wider world? 
Emily and Ido will also be back on Friday with a regular episode of World Review. You can follow all of our German election coverage at newstatesman.com slash Germany. And follow me on Twitter at Jeremy Cliff. This podcast was produced by Adrian Bradley. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.